I don't know if it's the election or like a general addiction to technology that's keeping me glued to my phone. Actually, sorry. I do know. I think it's the addiction to technology that's keeping me glued to my phone. And the election has just made me prone to bouts of listless exhaustion where I stare at the screen and await new horrors. Will the US become a Trump-based dictatorship? I eagerly await a Twitter push notification. I'm not even doom scrolling, I'm just staring into the void. I know I've been chanting, that's enough internet, everyone, for like the last five episodes, but seriously, that's enough internet, everyone. Pack it up. It feels like all of the different timelines are converging and we're just getting like bits and pieces of things that aren't supposed to be here falling through a wormhole. So now we just have to deal with them. And because every goddamn person in the universe is choosing to process their existence through social media, I keep finding out information through like 17 layers of meme. So for example, I found out about the rumor that Putin was resigning because he was diagnosed with Parkinson's through a fandom post about a male character from the excruciatingly long-running CW series Supernatural confessing his love to another male character. I'm very tired, is what I'm saying. Anyway, it did get me thinking about Supernatural for the first time in ages, which I guess is something. Uh, The two characters form part of an extremely popular fandom pairing, so essentially the writers decided to make it canon which got me thinking about queerness and television and our place in the TV canon. If I'm going to spend the rest of this hell year torturing myself with social media, at the very least, it should be useful. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about supernatural and canon queerness. Okay, so anyone who hasn't watched the never-ending series that is Supernatural, or who didn't spend most of 2012 and 2013, like, passively absorbing Tumblr posts, probably has no idea what I'm on about right now. So before I launch into what I actually want to talk about, I feel like I should take the time to acknowledge that not everyone is as online as I am. Uh, and maybe do a little bit of explaining, just so that when I start sort of throwing points at the wall to see what sticks, you're not like, hey, Alex, you lost me in the intro. I should probably say this isn't going to be spoiler free. So if you are very invested in Supernatural, then you should probably switch off now, go and enjoy the season and then circle back. We'll be waiting, I promise. Uh, Also, I apologize in advance if I sound mean I promise that I do think parts of the show are very good. I just think that 15 seasons is far too much of anything. Okay, so for those of you who haven't encountered Supernatural before, my first question is how? It's been running since 2005. There's 15 seasons. That's half my life this show has been on the air. My second question is, would you like to swap brains? Uh, Because mine is all smooth and shiny and yours seems like there might still be some life in it. Uh, But to give you an overview, Dean and Sam Winchester are brothers who come from a family of hunters. 
like the supernatural kind, uh, in case the title didn't give it away. They hunt monsters. Um, most of the time they're trying to stop the world from being ended by agents of Satan or whoever the king of hell is at the time. I can't get super detailed because I never really made it past like halfway through season six. And even then it was getting to the point where they were like defeating Satan's second cousin's evil dog walker, Frank. But throughout all of this, they have an angel buddy whose name is Castiel. Um, he's like with them for most of their ordeals. He's not a big winged thing. He's sort of morally complex and tortured. Anyway, the show itself was hugely popular and the fandom found its way onto the social blogging site Tumblr where they were extremely active and they gained a reputation for being on every single post. Vast swaths of the Tumblr fandom wanted Castiel, the tortured angel, to make out with Dean, the uh, tortured heterosexual. Uh, the writers of Supernatural responded to this popularity throughout the years by kind of actively acknowledging the presence and the importance of the fandom. There were whole plots that involve a writer publishing their stories in a book series with a cult following in the universe. There are episodes where the characters wind up at like a Supernatural fan convention that's based on the book series. Um, they see people cosplaying as certain pairings. It's all very meta. The show is ending this season, and by way of tying up all the loose ends, they had Castiel confess his love to Dean, thereby experiencing a moment of true happiness, uh, even though Dean does not say, I love you back. And then he is sucked into super hell, like a good guilty Catholic. Given that this has been like 15 years in the making, people were rattled both that the show would like choose to acknowledge the relationship at all, uh, and that it was also done in such a way where the only gay character got sucked into super hell. It's like hell, but worse. Literally four seconds after giving an impassioned speech about love and homosexuality. And that's the bit that actually got me thinking. Like, people make a really big deal about representation in TV and film. That's not a bad thing. Since so much of what we internalize about ourselves comes from the media we consume, it's important to make a conscious effort to share diverse stories. But if we're just shoehorning queer representation in as though representing marginalized people doesn't require, oh, I don't know, consultation or care, what are we actually achieving? And more importantly, what are we losing when we start to do that? I can't believe I'm about to write a whole episode of this podcast about meaningfully exploring queer subtext in response to a fucking supernatural episode. This is the worst timeline. Jesus Christ. <sighs> All right, let's get into it. We know that Hollywood is pretty bad at representation. It's why we have campaigns like hashtag Oscars so white, which called attention to the striking underrepresentation of people of color and particularly black people in the Oscars nominations for 2015, or why we were so ecstatic when Crazy Rich Asians was released. It's why people celebrate seeing women having actual conversations on the screen, or why women leading big franchises like Brie Larson and Captain Marvel, for example, receive such intense online backlash. It's why you barely ever see films about queer people that aren't playing at a niche film festival somewhere, or why we have to keep reminding people that you can actually cast trans women 
to play trans women or just like women, you know? People of color, women, queer people. Hollywood is rubbish at them all. What's that? Your identities are intersecting? Forget about it. But here's the thing. Just because these marginalized groups are hardly there on the screen doesn't mean they're not in the audience watching. They're probably just consuming movies and television a little differently to people who are seeing themselves literally all the time. There's a great documentary called Celluloid Closet, uh, which explores representations of homosexuality on the big screen and how they've evolved over time. I'm uh, probably going to quote from it a lot this episode, to be honest, because I don't have enough time to reread the book, and it's a pretty good historical overview. In it, American playwright and screenwriter Arthur Lawrence says, I think all minority audiences watch movies with hope. They hope that they will see what they want to see. That's why nobody really sees the same movie. Which I think is a pretty good way to put it. Watching movies is kind of an intimate experience. You're sitting in the dark, you get really involved in the narrative arc of someone else's life. That intimate experience is going to feel different between like Die Hard and Moonlight, for example. But you're still taking different things from those films than the person next to you. And that's a different kind of intimacy again. Now, on top of that, imagine that you're trying to translate the narrative backwards to make it make sense for your own life. You're not seeing yourself on the screen, and so you have to find the thread that brings that story back around. Marginalized groups have to do that all the time because their stories are so rarely articulated in a meaningful way by Hollywood. Representation is important in that sense because when you get more widespread and mainstream access to diverse stories, it's teaching viewers who might never have thought deeply about their place in the world to understand and relate to the people around them. Now, while a completely white cast is not going to be mitigated by hope necessarily, the thing with queerness on film is that sometimes actually hope is all you need. Well, like hope and a healthy ability to find and interpret subtext. See, in the late 20s, early 30s, the Motion Picture Association of America began developing and then enforcing the production code, which was essentially like a list of things that you could and couldn't show on film. Exclusions feature all your usuals, like nudity and profanity, plus some delightful era-specific things like no interracial relationships or no depictions of white slavery. One of the enduring no-nos from this era was sexual perversion. Now, when they say sexual perversion, they're not talking about people who are really into feet or autoerotic asphyxiation, although presumably those things are also not allowed. Anyway, sexual perversion is an indirect way of saying no queers. Because what are homosexuals if not big, morally bankrupt perverts? I mean, I am a morally bankrupt pervert, but it's unrelated. Or like, very related, but not for the reasons that the Motion Picture Association thought in 1934, okay? Anyway, point is, one of the reasons explicit homosexuality, or even just like, affection between men particularly is so notably absent from the big screen is that the MPA had pretty much carte blanche to chop and refine as they saw fit until all so-called sexual perversion was scrubbed clean from the screen. 
Just imagine like a Catholic in an editing room with a really big pair of scissors, a copy of the Bible and a hatred of sissies. And that's essentially the wall that a lot of filmmakers were hitting. But of course, when you have actual living, breathing homosexuals working in the industry and oftentimes writing your scripts, they become very difficult to expunge. In Celluloid Closet, American playwright Gore Vidal says, you got very good at projecting subtext without saying a word about what you were doing. He says this in the context of an anecdote about writing for the 1959 film Ben-Hur, in which it is fairly obvious that Stephen Boyd playing Masala is utterly in love with Charlton Heston playing Ben-Hur. Only they didn't tell Heston that that was what they were doing, because to quote Vidal, Chuck would lose his mind. So what you get are these loving, lingering gazes from Boyd, which are like a beacon to any homosexual who's ever yearned, but can go completely unnoticed by censors and heterosexual audiences. Now, I actually remember watching Celluloid Closet as part of my undergraduate degree, and having never been particularly self-reflexive of my own movie-watching habits, being very excited to find out that people were clearly articulating what I felt when I was watching movies. Mainly that bits of them were kind of a puzzle that only I could see. Like if I looked hard enough in the right places, then a whole hidden world of relationships and forbidden rendezvous would make themselves known. In an era of intense censorship, lots of these puzzle pieces were intentional. How do you say to your audience, this is a queer character, without actually saying it? But I'm a child of the 90s and noughties. Gays didn't need to hide. The L word ran for most of my teen years. Natasha Lyonne was in But I'm a Cheerleader. Oof. Willow and Tara were on Buffy. What could I possibly be doing looking for hidden queers in mainstream movies? Well, for one thing, a lot of explicit gays in big movies were sad. Or they died in the end. Or they were just such side characters that they barely existed at all. Whereas if I imagined the main characters having secret gay romances off screen, then they still got to have interesting lives and stories, and in some cases, actually survive the film. This phenomenon isn't unique to me. To quote Celluloid Closet again, Susie Bright says, It's amazing when you're a gay audience and you're accustomed to crumbs. How you'll just watch an entire movie to see an outfit that you think means someone is a homosexual. The whole movie can be junk, but you're just sitting there waiting for Joan Crawford to put on her black cowboy shirt again. And that's the thing. You'll take what you can get, and you'll recommend it to 50 of your closest gay friends. So what does this have to do with Supernatural? Look, we're drawing a pretty long bow here, so just bear with me. Gay audiences never really lost this habit of, like, pulling puzzle pieces together. And so the second Dean and Castiel started not just hanging out but having moments of kind of genuine tenderness, the fandom started to latch onto them and use it to build out their personal view of the relationship. And because it's the age of the internet, rather than finding quiet personal satisfaction in having solved that little puzzle, like I did when I was a child and I decided that all of the angels in the Charlie's Angels reboot were lesbians, they took to social media instead to write and draw and otherwise remake the world of the show and to share that remaking with other like-minded fans. 
Like I mentioned before, Supernatural is pretty unique in terms of its relationship to its audience. So it has regularly acknowledged the presence of its fans and the ways that they interpret the show. Throughout the years, though, one thing it has consistently been accused of is queer baiting. That is, laying down obvious hints at a same-sex relationship to keep the audience engaged with the content while never actually following through. So if we wanted to be cynical, we could say that the showrunners being aware of the tastes of the audience encouraged them to give just enough to maintain audience interest in the relationship between Dean and Castiel, while never having to actually write the relationship. But now they've given the audience what it's been holding out for all these years. Dean and Castiel are canon. So everything's fine, right? Well... Like, everything's fine except for the bit where the guy who just said I love you was immediately sucked into super hell because hell wasn't enough for naughty homosexual angels with crushes on their beer-drinking all-American BFFs. Bury Your Gaze is a trope that I briefly alluded to earlier in which, what with sexual perversion being the most enduring cinema sin of all, gays are inevitably killed off by the end of the film to atone for their crime of existing in the first place. These big screen gays, if they're not somehow offed for being perverts, will often take their own life because they loathe what perverts they are. By finally actually putting the relationship on paper, the writers of Supernatural managed to simultaneously confirm everyone's suspicions and destroy all of the world building that fans had done. And in doing so, they fell back on a really old trope. Although, to be fair, I do think they do so in record time. This is the fastest homosexual confession to death scene I think I've ever seen in my life. Even giving the benefit of the doubt, and assuming that the writers actually care about representation, they've still done an exceptionally bad job of it. (laughs) They really struggle to find a way to be explicit, even when they're laying it out. Castiel starts by saying, you changed me, Dean, and then dances around the issue for like a solid minute by going on about how Dean taught him to love the whole world before finally naming the big gay elephant in the room. And for his part, Dean looks constipated, I think. (laughs) He might be trying for emotional, I don't know. Castiel dies smiling without so much as like a final hug goodbye. It's like stiff and strangely edited and unsatisfying at best. At worst, it's just reiterating every shitty representation of gays that came before it. It is the perfect example of what happens when a writer's room doesn't understand what a minority audience is asking of it. I asked at the beginning what we lose when we're given representation in big, silly, mainstream shows like Supernatural. And the easy answer should be nothing. Representation is good. But I think it's actually a little more complex than that. What gay audiences have been working with on the show for the last 15 years is actually crumbs, even if the sheer amount of content available makes it feel more whole than that somehow. And the thing with crumbs and a lack of confirmation is that you end up with a kind of Schrodinger's gaze situation. Do they exist? Don't they exist? Doesn't matter. Because if you want the answer to be yes, then the world is your oyster. Does that lingering hand on the shoulder mean they spent a passionate evening together hiding from demons in a bunker and that every slight touch brings back erotic memories? 
Is he staring at his ass? Is that gaze full of love? Yes, to all of the above, if you want it. I'm not worried about losing the ability to pull puzzle pieces together. I think gay audiences will always be able to do that. Barring some freak accident where everyone suddenly becomes a homosexual. Possibly involving laser beams. Who's to say? I don't know what the gay agenda is. We're always going to be a minority audience. The actual loss is that mainstream representation at the moment is almost never on our terms. Which means that if you're a fan of something because of the subtext, when it's suddenly made canon, you're losing the things you find for yourself in the film for the sake of some Catholic guilt and being consumed by the void. I doubt the writers of Supernatural see the difference between what they've written and what fans believed the relationship between Dean and Castiel was. And that's the problem. Representation like that is barely representation at all. In which case, what's the point? I did it. I wrote an entire episode on queer subtext based on Supernatural. (laughs) I don't even know what year it is anymore. Uh, Briefly, before I sign off, this is the second to last episode of this podcast for the season. Uh, We'll be taking a little break after next week. If you have enjoyed this season, make sure you're subscribed wherever you like your podcasts. Uh, You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PopCultureBoner. We'd also love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes. I hate doing plugs. So if you have thoughts about what the perfect number of seasons is for a TV show, it cannot possibly be 15. If you have an argument for 15, though, I'd really love to hear it. Tell me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. Peace.